Good morning. I'm Randy Buckwalter, one of the elders serving you here at Redeemer. And I have the honor of sharing the scripture with you that Dan will be using as his sermon text this morning. And this week he will continue with the uh, series on the miracles of Jesus. And today that will be Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 20, in which we will read about the feeding of the 5,000. So as is our tradition, and if you're able, we'd ask that you rise in honor of the reading of God's word. So starting in verse 10 of chapter 9. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. And the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old is risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Thanks be to God for his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. You may be seated. Well, good morning. What a great promise to sing together, isn't it? In the midst of all that's going on, to be reminded, one day we will weep no more, and we will be at a feast. Um, we're in this series, The Miracles of Jesus, Windows into the Grand Story of Redem Redemption. Uh, we just sang, What Child Is This? and sang the song, Who Is This? And that's the question that Luke has been putting before us. Who is this man who can calm the wind and the waves? Who is this man who can exercise demons, who can heal the sick, who can raise the dead? Who is this man? And at the end of our passage, you heard, who do the crowd say I am, but who do you say I am? These are vital questions for the world and for us to ask this morning. And so as we look at this last passage uh, that we're going to look at in our series, a miracle that is, besides the resurrection, the only miracle that is in all four Gospels. Why is that? Why did they see something so significant that everyone wanted this passage to be recorded for the people of God? Well, we're going to look at this passage because it does help us answer the question, who, who is Jesus? So let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would eclipse our doubts and our fears with the brilliance and radiance of your Son, Jesus, this morning. Help us to see him in all his beauty and glory. And by seeing that, that you would strengthen our weak and frail and often faltering faith. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we moved to Philadelphia, we lived in a small town called Silicaga, which means buzzard's roost. Sounds like a great place to live, doesn't it? 
It was a town of about 12 to 15,000 people. And on Friday nights, uh, a large portion of the town would go to the football games. Several thousand people would be there. And at halftime, the announcer would say, all right, everybody come down and get a hot dog and popcorn for some fellowship. Like, you know you're in the deep south when they're talking about fellowship at halftime over a hot dog. Now, I don't know if you know this, but one of uh, your elders, Ivan Spronk, used to help run the concession stand at Sanderson High School when his kids were in the band. And he put his engineering mind to use, and he had a whole notebook to know how to determine how much food to get. Like, he had it proportioned to how much, hot, how much ketchup and mustard went on hot dogs. Like, he had this whole spreadsheet, so he knew what to buy. Now, why do I share all this mundane, you think, useless trivia? Because I want you to picture the entire town that I lived in out in a field listening to Jesus teach. And I want you to picture Ivan trying to figure out how to feed everybody with his notebook and no BJ's or Costco nearby. Okay, so that's the enormity of what's going on here. About 12 to 15,000, some estimate 20,000, because when they say there were 5,000 men, they usually counted by household. So it didn't include the women and the children specifically in the count, but you just knew there were over 5,000 families here listening to Jesus in this desolate place. And we see some different reactions. What is the reaction of the disciples? A couple of them who live nearby were able to think, hey, Jesus, there's nothing around here. There's no Taco Bell. There's no McDonald's. There's no Bojangles. There's no BJ's. We don't know what to do. The other one, the, the accountant, was like, and if we did know what to do, it would be eight months' wages. We don't have that kind of cash, Jesus. Let's just send everybody home to fend for themselves. But Jesus had a different plan. Jesus, it says, welcomed them. See, they had followed them. Now, it's important to, to realize kind of what's going on in the bigger setting here. Uh, That's why we often say context is really key, or context is even king. Kind of what's going on before and after this passage. In John, and I encourage you maybe to read all four accounts over uh, together this afternoon, because they're a little bit different. They give us certain insights from two thy witnesses and others who had had the story shared with them. Because again, I want you to think for a second. I mean, this is fifteen to 20,000 people who are about to get fed by Jesus in the middle of a field, this would be a memorable event. And so that if people were talking about it, it might be easy to just say, that didn't happen. But so many people here were fed. Now, a lot of them didn't see how it happened. They didn't, maybe were oblivious to it, but they knew that this event took place. In fact, I think it's interesting, a couple of them, almost nothing seems to happen, except in John, and we'll talk this, about this in a minute, there was a very different reaction to Jesus feeding this crowd. So Jesus has fed this crowd. He, he welcomes them. And John, it said, actually, he knew what he was going to do ahead of time, so he was actually testing his disciples. So in the context of what happened at the beginning of Luke 9, Jesus had sent his disciples out. And it's really interesting. It says he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And then he went out, and it says, and they preached the gospel and healed many. So we've talked about this idea of the kingdom of God quite a bit throughout this because Jesus said he came to preach the kingdom of God, that the king is at hand, that Jesus came to do something cosmic. 
not just for individuals, but he came to restore all of creation, to be king over heaven and earth. And that as he came, he was establishing his kingdom. It was breaking in as he did these miracles. They weren't just demonstrations of raw power. He could have done that. I mean, he just could have had a crowd teaching. He said, look what I'm going to do, the waves over there, and just like parted them. Every time Jesus healed or did a miracle, every time Jesus did a miracle, it was for the benefit of someone. Not just raw power, not just, hey, look how great I am. It was a window into who he was and the kingdom he was going to establish. I like how one person wrote it. He says, we modern people think of miracles as the suspension of natural order. But Jesus meant them to be the restoration of natural order. Do you see the difference? We think miracles are coming in and doing something beyond our abilities. This, some, this amazing thing to heal the, de- the sick, to raise the dead, to exercise demons, to, to calm the storm. And what this is saying is, no, in the kingdom of God, in the economy of God, before the fall, and what's going to happen after Christ comes again in fullness, there'll be no more storms. There'll be no more sickness. No more death. No more hunger. No more blindness. See, this is the kingdom of God coming in and establish things as they should. The author goes on to write, the Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death. Jesus has come to redeem where it's wrong and heal the world where it's broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, that he has power but also wonderful foretaste of what he's going to do with that power. Friends, that's what we've been talking about. These are windows into the glory of God's redemption. Not just who Jesus is, but what he's going to do in this creation. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. That we just sang about, we will feast in Zion. See, there's this longing that we were created for. All those heartaches, all those disappointments, all those frustrations are pointers that there is something more, something greater that God is at work doing. And we do want to see it break in here and now, but it won't fully until Christ comes again. When the blind see and the lame walk, these are a picture of the restored world. And the disciples were told to go out and proclaim the coming of that kingdom and to heal. And, and Jesus said, go, and I don't want you to take any food. I want you to trust me to provide for you. And they went out and they preached and they came back and they're coming back to Jesus and they want to share all that's going on. He's trying to take them to a private place to have a little retreat and they could get Jesus alone time and the crowds follow them. Okay, so you can imagine a little bit of frustration. They're tired. They want to debrief about this trip and yet the crowds are coming and Jesus welcomes them. Meanwhile, it says Herod, who's just killed John the Baptist because John dared to speak about sin in Herod's life. And he says, Herod says, who is this? See, Luke is continuing posing that question from different people. Who is this who are doing these ama- who's doing these amazing things? So the apostles come back. They told Jesus all they had done. He, he took them away to a small town, but the crowd follows them. And while Jesus welcomed them in one of the other gospels, it says, and Jesus looked at them, And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he taught them and he healed them. And now as a good shepherd, he's going to feed his sheep as well. 
But the disciples were not so inclined. Now we're all familiar with the story. Jesus feeds the 5,000, five loaves of bread, two fish. What, what, what are we supposed to come away with from this? Well, there are clues in here that we might miss in this Gospel, though they're there, that John makes explicit. So some other con- contextual clues, other things going on. It's the time of Passover. And if you know the story of Passover, it's God's redeeming and rescuing His people out of Egypt. It's, it's the last of the, the miracles where He says, Israel, I want you to have a feast. I want you to take a perfect lamb. I want you to kill it. I want you to eat it. But I want you to take the blood. I want you to put it over the door. And as you do that, that will be protection from you. With the blood of the Lamb, the angel of death will bring judgment on the firstborn, will pass over you, and you will not face death. And then they were able to be free and to come out of Egypt. And God delivered them through the Red Sea into the desert. So it's Passover time, and Luke says they're in a desolate place. That word also could be translated desert. Now, you might find it odd if you read John, because John says they sat down in this field with a lot of grass. Well, that doesn't seem like a desert to us. Luke, I think, is particularly using some of this language to make you think about the first Exodus, the first Passover. Because Jesus is going to do what God did for Israel then. Because do you remember what happened in the wilderness, in the desert? They didn't have food, so what did God do? He brought down manna. He brought down bread from heaven. He provided quail for them to to eat so much that they had this phrase that they had so much quail it was coming out of their nostrils. It's kind of like turkey after Thanksgiving Like on the eighth day, you're done with turkey. It's just coming out of your nostrils, right? You don't love turkey anymore. Some of you don't even love it in the first place. But they were tired of God's provision, but he was providing daily. There was something interesting, too, you may remember, that when the manna would come down, they could collect enough just for food for the next day. If they collected too much to hold some over, it was rotted the next day, except on Friday where God allowed them to collect two days so that they didn't have to work on the Sabbath. And isn't it interesting in this provision, Jesus, who in John 6 says, I am the bread of life, provided enough bread for everybody to be full and there were 12 baskets left over. Here's an abundance of God's provision that will not go away the next day. Here's God's provision, Jesus, the bread of life, who's able to provide for his people. And again, this is so significant given what the scriptures tell us. There's a passage in Ezekiel 34 where the prophet is calling out the failures of the shepherds of God's people. And he says, I'm going to raise up for you a true shepherd. And listen to the signs of the true shepherd. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. So he's saying, I'm going to be the shepherd. They've failed. I will be your shepherd. And as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered. I will bring them out from the peoples. I will gather them from the countries. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. By the ravines and all the inhabited places of the country, 
I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land. On rich pastures they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the God, the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Jesus says, I'll be that good shepherd. I am that shepherd. We see him beginning to fulfill that in John 6. I am the bread of life. Who, who eats of me will never go hungry. See, Jesus is speaking beyond their physical hunger. He's saying, I want you to have a taste of what I can do for you forever. I will fulfill your spiritual hunger. You will be satisfied in me. I will meet your every need. And then in John 10, Jesus goes so far as to saying, I am the good shepherd. He makes it explicit. I am this good shepherd and I will lay down my life for the sheep. He becomes the sacrificial lamb. It is through his blood that is painted over our lives as we believe in him that the judgment of God, the angel of death, passes over us. And we are free. And we need never hunger again. We won't be thirsty again, he tells us. In John 6 and then, he says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. And anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for life of the world is my flesh. Why is Jesus so explicit here? Listen to what happens in John 6. The other reactions are kind of like everyone had a meal and was like, yeah, okay. Luke doesn't say much about the crowd's reaction. He does jump to Peter's reaction and the disciples, which we'll get to in a minute. Matthew, it's like he did this miracle and everyone's like, okay. Glad we had a good meal. Thanks. But listen to what they do in John. When the people saw the sign, this is John 6, 14. When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again into the mountain by himself. See, they knew they needed a deliverer. They needed a Messiah. So Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed. And back then you would anoint the prophets, the priests, and the kings. But they often saw those three roles as completely distinct. What we see is Jesus bringing all those roles as prophet, priest, and king together as the anointed prophet, the anointed priest, the anointed king, the one who would give us the word of God, the one who would rule over our hearts, and the one who would die in behalf of his people. So they mistakenly were looking for a king, a political ruler, who would free them from the oppression of Rome. So they wanted to make him king because they wanted their lives to be better. They just had full bellies. Later, Jesus says, you just followed me because you're full. He didn't follow me because of your hunger for me as your redeemer. And isn't there something of that impulse in all of us? We want to use Jesus as a king of our own making. We want to leverage him to have the lives that we desire and dream of. 
I think that's true for all of us. We want the benefits of Jesus without having to bow the knee to him. We have that compulsion rather to say, okay, Jesus, but I want you to deliver the life that I'm dreaming of, that I'm thinking of. I want you to deliver life for the world around me as I think it should be. I think you need to have me be your main counselor because I have the idea how everything should be. And I wonder how much this idea of prosperity and has crept into our thinking. I wonder how much of this this dynamic to make Jesus king apart from his kingdom has slipped into how we think about life. See, Jesus knew they misunderstood his kingdom. So he was going to let them co-opt him to do what he was going to do. And he has been co-opted for centuries. Now Jesus wasn't going to let them reduce him and shape him with their misshapen theology and view. No, so he, he left. And he had to clarify and clear, make clear to them what he came to do in the rest of John 6 and then in John 10. Now he is the bread. Unless you, he says, you eat of the flesh of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Yes, Jesus had compassion. One day there will be a place where people are no longer hungry. And we as a church individual should be caring for the poor. We should be feeding the hungry. But if we stop there, we miss everything. Because Jesus said, no, I need you to eat of me. See, I believe it's when we get that order right that it actually makes us compassionate and not like the disciples say, like, man, this is too big. I don't know what I can do. See, we tend to have uh, one of two responses or somewhere in between, but often, you know, this, this really was an impossible task to feed a small city in the middle of nowhere with no resources. And so they were like, no, we can't do it. Now remember what had just happened. They had just gone off and preached and proclaimed the gospel and healed and Jesus had provided for their needs, probably not supernaturally, but through means, which is still by his grace. And they were like, yeah, he did it for us, but I don't think he can do it this big. Haven't you felt that this year? Haven't you felt insignificant and insufficient to the tasks in front of you i mean they looked at their resources john tells us was a little boy he said look what i got i got a couple couple pickled fish ugh, and five barley loaves which was the bread of the poor probably not great bread so of course there's nothing they can do And yet, Jesus made the disciples act in faith, seat everybody in groups of 50. What would you have been thinking? i got to be honest, I would have been grumbling under my my breath. What's he making us do this for? There's no way he's going to feed everybody. There's no possible way he could ever do this. I'll do it because I'm kind of a rule follower and Jesus has been pretty cool and done a lot of things, but not this. You know why I say I'd think that? Because I've done that this year. Jesus, what are you going to do in my family's life? Some of the problems are too big. 
going to care for this church in the midst of stress and fractures that we haven't seen before? What are you going to do in our state and our nation? What are you going to do in this world? As I grumble under my breath, I'm insufficient. I'm insignificant. The problem's too great. But America, we're doers, so the opposite stream is this like, we, we go into to manic mode. I will do it, I will control, I will figure out what I'm going to do, and so we just work and work and work, and then we sprinkle some God pixie dust on the end and pray, like, please make my efforts work. Right? We, we get so wound up, we have to figure out a way, because we're smart enough, we're America, come on, we can do this. And we begin to try to control and shape and then leverage God. And so often, in that, that manic mode, we sometimes, I think, begin to make stands on opinion or wisdom as if they're ultimate truths. Because we just got to do something. And both of those have poor views of ourselves. One too high and one too low. What does it look like to act in faith? It doesn't say the disciples groaned under breath. I'm not accusing them. I'm just revealing my own weakness. They obeyed. And Mark gives the idea, by the way, he describes it, that as Jesus looked up in heaven and gave thanks, the bread just kept multiplying. And he just kept handing it to the disciples, and it just kept coming and coming and coming in overabundance. God took their insignificant little means and as they acted in faith did a miraculous thing friends that's the picture of the church throughout the history as we have tried in weakness to act in faith he has done great things when we try to build in pride we see that we are not sufficient to the task and we often build on a poor foundation Here's the thing. I think almost all of us here this morning believe Jesus did this. I think our struggle is, do we believe we can do the same thing today? I heard one person talking about this. Do we believe we have the same power, the same God at work? Paul did. In Philippians 4, he says, my God will meet all my needs in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe He will meet all your needs for the impossible struggle you're facing at work? Or with your child? Or with your spouse? Or with your church? Or with your nation? If we could say, I know that God will meet all my needs for His good and His glory and that He'll take care of me. How different would our lives look? If we were able to say with David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I am satisfied. I am content. Do you believe? 
So who is this? Who is this man who walks on water, who calms the wind and the storm, who raises the dead, who heals the sick, who provides the manna from heaven, who is himself who gives life? Friends, there are so many people out there who are hungering for life, who don't know Jesus, and it can feel overwhelming. And yet, in our insignificance, in our insufficiency, that is exactly those he chooses to use. For it's in our weakness that the Lord is made strong. It is in him that we see that he will seek out the lost. This passage beautifully shows that Jesus is the one filled with compassion. That Jesus is the one who has power to accomplish God's purposes, that he has redeemed us, he will feed us. Do you believe? If you do, what is God calling you to put in? See, it did require everything of them. It wasn't much, but it required everything. And that's a scary thing to do. To say, all I have, all my money, all my time, all my, my mental capacity, all my emotional capacity, Lord, it's yours. Use it how you will that I could build your kingdom, not my kingdom. Oh, friends, could we read this passage and be able to walk away and say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The Lord is my Passover lamb. I will feast in heaven with him. And so I can live now and pray for and act towards bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Because of his strength, not mine. Let's pray together. Father, help us to see the power, the majesty, the compassion of King Jesus, who is also the good shepherd, who is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who is also the King who will come again and establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven in fullness. So Father, help us to say, You are the Christ. That we would give him all of ourselves. I pray in his name. Amen.